Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hi, I'm Tom Butler. And I'm Brendan Duffy. You're listening to the James Bond A to Z podcast. Join us on this journey of discovery across the world of the 007 movies as we take an encyclopedic look at cinema's greatest spy films. We'll learn about the people who made them in front of the camera and behind, from Ken Adam to Max Zorin, with the occasional detour down a few rabbit holes. And we'll sometimes be joined by guests with unique insight into the world of Bond. This podcast is in no way affiliated with the James Bond brand, E.ON, or the Fleming Estate. We do our best to make sure the information is accurate, but sometimes we do get it wrong. If you want to correct us on something, or add some more detail, email us on podcast at jamesbondatz.co.uk. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to the James Bond A to Z podcast, where T is for The Man with the Golden Gun, the 1974 James Bond film starring Roger Moore as 007. My name is Tom Butler and joining me as we take a look at Sir Roger's second outing as Bond, he has a powerful weapon, he charges a million a shot, it's Mr Brendan Duffy. (laughs) Very good, hello. And making his full James Bond A to Z podcast debut, no one can catch him, no hitman can match him, it's author and journalist Mr Steve O'Brien. Hello. So... The Man with the Golden Gun. Uh, where do you both stand with this movie? What do you remember your first experiences with it? Steve, I'll start with you. Well, it's actually one of the Bond films I know the least because uh, it's one I only ever watch if I'm doing a, a sort of a film by film marathon. And it, I just, I, you know, it's one I never think about ever putting on and just watching on its own. Um, and I, I don't know, I get the impression it's like that for a lot of people, you know. I mean, I, I, I should love it. Because it's Tom Mankiewicz, it's uh, it's Guy Hamilton. You know they directed and wrote like my favourite Bond movies, and yet for some reason this just feels a little bit flat. And Brendan, well, you know where I stand on Roger Moore. Um, <laughs> and my two favourite Roger Moore are either side of this one. So, right, if it wasn't if it wasn't for Christopher Lee, there's there's not a lot for me in this. I think. Yeah, I would say it's one that I, I, I sort of neglect to watch as, as often as I should. But um, when we watched it at the uh, or, or when it was back at the cinema this summer, uh, went to see it. And um, it's actually quite a light, easy watch, to be honest. Um, it is. I mean, this is probably Mankiewicz, but it is sort of full of puns and one liners and stuff. I said at the time, it's like the carry on of Bond films. It's um, it's very innuendo heavy. But it, it sort of comes at a very pivotal time for the Bond films, right? And that's something we'll discuss um, as we go on. Uh, it is, um, as the records show, one that Cubby Broccoli took the lead on producing. And as we discussed, I think, when we talked about Harry Saltzman, there seemed to be, when they were going backwards and forwards, each one taking a turn, that, that when it was Cubby's turn, they would be a bit more fantastical, a bit more out there. And I think that's certainly the case uh, with the man with the golden gun. It's a very bizarre, bizarre movie. Mm. Mm. It's, it's odd. It's, it's not like a divisive film like Moonraker or Thunderball or 
I don't know, even Quantum Solace, because they're all quite sort of Marmite films, because it's just a sort of forgotten, slightly overlooked uh, Bond, you know, and because it's sort of bookended, obviously, you know, Brendan, as you said, by Like Live and Let Die and Spy Love Me, these sort of titans of, uh, of, of the Bond, you know, franchise, it sort of just tends to get forgotten about, you know, and it's only when you when you're watching it sort of chronologically. It's, it's like more the more era really begins with the spy love me, and this looks like a sort of a demo, you know, where they're sort of just searching around for a sort of direction and and sort of floundering a little bit. Yeah, I think it reeks of uh, a lot of behind the scenes sort of uh, discord as well, doesn't it? This sort of doesn't seem to be a, a cohesive. Um... Uh, approach to it behind the scenes there's a lot of sort of backwards and forwardsing um but let's kick in kick things off i'll just give us a, a quick synopsis courtesy of the mgm site james bond has been marked for death and he'll need all his lethal instincts and seductive charm to survive in this action-packed adventure roger moore returns as agent 007 faces off in a deadly game of cat and mouse mouse with re- world-renowned assassin francisco scaramanga his weapon of choice is a distinctive gold pistol. When Scaramanga seizes the priceless Solex energy converter, 007 must recover the device and confront the killer in a heart-stopping duel to the death with a slide whistle. <laughs> <laughs> oh, don't. Don't remind me of that bit. We'll get there. We'll get there. So, Brendan, first of all, 1974, what was it like, uh, Hollywood? Um, I'm I'm going to go bigger than that. I'm going to go globally what, right. what it was like. So I'm just going to talk about the 1973 oil crisis, just because I don't think we've got enough of you know, energy crisis. I thought it would give us some more. Um, October 1973, and this plays into the how they wrote the script as well. Um, it's not just me babbling. So the Saudi Arabia um, petroleum uh, countries, they all put a, an oil embargo in place and... That was targeted at the nations that had supported Israel during the Yom Kippur War. Canada, Japan, the Netherlands, the UK and the US were all targeted. The embargo ended in March 1973. Price of oil had risen 300% from $3 a barrel to $12 a barrel globally. So this caused caused a massive global shock and... um, had short-term effects, long-term effects on global politics and the economy. So that's that's where we're at globally. It's also referenced in the script. Um, but in terms of film, the top three grossing films of 1974. Any guesses? 1974. Uh, Godfather Pop 2? No, surprisingly not. Okay. Um, oh, not I... Carry on, Dick. <laughs> <laughs> so, so at number three we've got young frankenstein oh okay. number two blazing saddles and number one the towering inferno oh so a good a good year for mel brooks then <laughs> pretty much wow um and in terms of the academy awards the following year 1975 the godfather did win best picture godfather part two just going to touch on the earlier plans as well for the man with the golden gun so cubby and harry saltzman they wanted to follow You Only Live Twice with The Man with the Golden Gun. And they wanted Roger Moore to play Bond. I think we've mentioned this in previous episodes. We must have. We've done enough episodes by now. So um, the filming was going to be in Cam- Cambodia. Um, but Roger Moore had commitments to the saint. And that meant he couldn't do this 
and it led to the production being cancelled. So, Honor Majesty's Secret Service was made instead. Obviously, Lazenby comes in. Um, and then Saltzman said Lazenby's next film would be either The Man with the Golden Gun or Diamonds Are Forever. Obviously, Lazenby quit the role. And um, Sean Connery came back and they made Diamonds Are Forever. So, that's where we're at. We're finally making The Man with the Golden Gun in 1974. Yeah, just wanted to say when they talk about the the choice of making a Golden Gun after You Only Live Twice, they talked about it being you know the last Bond book released by Ian Fle- Ian Fleming, and and that's why they were keen to capitalise on it at that point, um, mm-hmm. which kind of makes sense when you think about the chronology of it all. It's quite unusual in the sense of uh, you know I mean Bond has sort of been inspired by real life events before but it's this is unusual in the sense that it's it's absolutely anchored by a real world event and not just that but it it actually mentions dates uh in the script very unlike kind of most bond films because there's a reference to 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 002 uh being killed in 1969 and scaramanga sort of um uh going independent in the late 50s and it's it's rare to have a kind of it's like tom mankovich didn't get the memo that this isn't done in bond films uh, and it, it absolutely roots it to to a time, you know, unlike any other uh, Bond movie. Yeah, and this idea of an en- energy crisis, you know, it feels even more relevant today than ever, right? Absolutely, yeah. Depressingly so. But we've touched upon it being a, a pivotal point. Um, Steve, can you fill us in a bit more why that is? Well, this was obviously uh, Harry Saltzman's uh, last uh, film as co-producer. Uh, I mean, he'd been having financial problems uh for quite a while uh i mean he'd he was the one with more outside interests than than cubby broccoli i mean he'd produced the three harry palmer films obviously and uh various other films like the battle of britain and there was a science fiction musical called uh, tomorrow that was a, a big flop um and he had various other interests like uh he won control of of the technicolor motion picture corporation but then had to sell off all his shares because of uh you know various various loans that he had to repay uh, and he was into real estate as well um, and he was always trying to get various movies off the starting block but often often didn't have the funds to make them so uh, and I think that I mean he was having financial problems but also I think the relationship between him and him and Broccoli had been coming sort of increasingly strained over the past few years and uh, I think Broccoli thought that Saltzman wasn't giving Bond his undivided attention and I think they were temperamentally very different people. Broccoli seems to be the most sort of universally adored of the two, um, whereas Saltzman seems to ha- seems to have been a harder person to like and more prone to sort of hissy fits and and, and uh, you know uh, temper tantrums. Um, and and I think you know, Broccoli felt let down by him because he uh, uh, Saltzman sold his fifty percent of Dan Jack to United Artists. So I think uh, Broccoli expected quite reasonably that he, uh, he would sell them to him. Um, and I think it's kind of slightly ironic that it was the partner who was the most keen on, on hiring Roger Moore. You know, Broccoli wasn't keen initially, uh, that failed to see Roger Moore's sort of time out. Um, and yeah, post Bond, uh, he only produced two, two films, uh, a ballet, uh, a ballet drama called Nijinsky and a coming of age drama about, about gypsies, uh, neither of which uh, performed well, um, and he also tried to buy, buy Shepperton Studios, but sort of tax laws meant that that, that, that's, that couldn't go through. So it wasn't a very sort of illustrious uh, career, sort of 
post Bond for, for, for him. Yeah, real uh, real shame to see him go at this stage. But I think, like you say, the, the, the relationship had soured so far. Um, a relationship that hadn't soured, though, was with director Guy Hamilton. He returned to make his third Bond film in a row. Um, it would be his fourth and final James Bond film, having already done uh, Goldfinger, of course. Um, but in February 1973... Um, this is obviously uh, before Live and Let Die came out. Ha- uh, Guy Hamilton seemed quite wary of committing to making another Bond film, having just worked for 18 months on Live and Let Die. And one of the, the subtext of it was that he didn't really enjoy the deteriorating relationship between Harry and Cubby. He felt he could work fine with one or the other, but not when they worked together. He called it a disaster area. Uh, but yes, yeah, so a guy Hamilton was hired, hired to direct this one. I think they wanted to capitalise on the success of Live and Let Die, which had been a hit globally. Um, so they went to work resurrecting this original plan for the film. You mentioned Cambodia before. I think there was a lot of uh, political turmoil there as well. So they basically couldn't commit to doing uh, Cambodia. Uh, but they looked at other, uh, as well as other places in the Middle East, they considered, um, in the Far East, they considered working in the Middle East. Um Hamilton dismissed looking at uh, shooting in Israel because he'd shot a movie there in 1961 with David Niven called The Best of Enemies and found it not an ideal filming location. They also looked at Lebanon and in Iran, um, but Guy Hamilton said there's basically bugger all in Tehran. And then when Israel declared war on Egypt, they just they nixed the idea completely. Um, Hamilton then, then was also then key in finding the Thailand location, although the production designer Peter Merton also claims credit for finding the location of Phuket. Um, uh, Guy Hamilton says, I was looking through National Geographic and I see one of those wonderful islands, a sort of rocks come out of the sea and it's in Thailand. And, and I said, that's Bondian, you know, where is it? And they literally went down the street out of the Eon offices, down Audley Street to the Thailand embassy, knocked on the door and said, where is this? <laughs> and even the people in the embassy couldn't figure out where it was, but they did find it uh, in the end. Uh, but he later expressed regrets about shooting there um, because it became a tourist destination. Um, uh, and obviously it was one of the untouched places in the world. But talking about adapting the film for Roger's skills, obviously he'd worked with um, Sean Connery twice and now he's going to work with uh, with Roger Moore for the second time. He said, there are things that Roger does extremely well. He's a good light comedian. For me, his shortcoming is that he's a pussycat. He's too nice to be Bond. When he hits somebody, you sort of feel, you know, and when Sean hits, you feel that he means it. Roger, we had to keep it light with Roger. Try not to do too much physical stuff. Yes, we can do some Kung Fu because you can be taught how to do that uh, sort of stuff. Um, But uh, so that's Guy Hamilton. um, But he had some difficulties as well. His own tensions, I believe, with the writer of the of the script as well, Brendan. Yes, Tom Mankiewicz. But I've just taken it back slightly, just going back to the novel, just because the novel itself was half finished. Uh, just gone through its first draft Ian Fleming passed away and the book was released in April 1965 so the, the the original story The Man with the Golden Gun Bond is missing he's presumed dead after his last mission in Japan Bond then returns to the UK via the Soviet Union he's been brainwashed and he has, uh, attempts to assassinate M 
He is then cured by the MI6 doctors and sent to the Caribbean to find and kill Scaramanga. So um, it's a pretty simple plot, but they they didn't go with that. Um, just as a side note, With a Mind to Kill, the third anti-Horowitz Bond novel, takes place directly after the events of this one. Mm. So they didn't have a lot of source material to work with on this one. Um, and that meant Tom Mankiewicz had to get a workable script by getting rid of most of Fleming's original and come up with his own story. So Mankiewicz got to work and um, he didn't get that far until tensions came a bit strained with Guy Hamilton. He said that the, the screenplay had got mired down in all sorts of story problems and the relationship with Hamilton deteriorated. They had a great friendship and respect for each other, but at the same time, this was proven too much. Um, He said, we were very short-tempered with each other and I resigned from the project after the first draft. It was a lot of personal things and also just the way everything was going at the time. It was an unhappy time of my life and in his. Guy Hamilton was about to leave the UK for tax reasons, ring the tax bell uh, (laughs) again. But he said uh, he got on with Tom Mankiewicz really well. He said he left Tom in London and he went off with Cubby um, and they were location scouting. Tom was left rather on his own in the UK, he said. I saw him next week, came up to join us in Hong Kong and I don't think he was a happy boy. So he left the project after that first draft. He just went to Cubby, uh, Cubby and said, that's it. I think I've, that's me done. I've provided what I, I think I can. Um, so they brought on board Richard Maybaum. So Richard Maybaum came on, on board to uh, shore up the script and give his own spin on everything. Mankiewicz later said that the project never really fell into place um, and he wasn't really happy with the work that he'd done. But Richard Maybaum, he returned no- November 1973 was when he was brought on board. And during the energy crisis, which we talked about before, he said... As usual, we were looking for a world threat and it came down to either solar power or weather control. Harry Saltzman felt that weather control was not a good idea. He felt it would just be a lot of special effects and stock footage showing hurricanes and tropical storms. He was right at the time. And so Maybaum came up with the Solex agitator. He wasn't really happy with that idea, but he just decided to go with it and and really pad it out. Um, The differences, one of the main differences, so Mankiewicz's original... Uh, had the Bond and Scaramanga was a very stripped down head to head story. And then when Maybound came on board, it really pulled it out for this to this global energy crisis. Hearing that, I, I thought that's what I would have liked to have seen actually just Scaramanga and Bond. I could watch Christopher Lee and Roger Moore on an <laughs> island for two hours. <laughs> um, so, but these things happen, don't they? Um, Guy Hamilton said that the script process was messy on this film. Um, and they found it difficult to try and get into Bondian situations, um, and the location scouting wasn't ideal. Yeah, well, um, obviously this film sees the return of John Barry, but it's not one of I think I don't think it's one of his more sort of distinguished scores. Uh, the time away didn't seem to uh, fire up his creative juices. Um, but I think what's more noticeable is the fact that this obviously Ken Adam uh, sat this one out. 
uh, and replacing him as as production designer is uh, Peter Merton, who was no stranger to the Bond uh, series because he'd been art director on Goldfinger and Thunderball, um, and also had worked on on the various Harry Palmer films. But this was his first film as production designer, and I don't I think it lacks the sort of grandeur that that we come to expect from Bond films. Um, you know, there's a sort of operatic quality to, to Adams, as Bond says, where even a bog standard office is, you know, designed to look dramatic and, and impressive on the big screen. Um, but he doesn't ha- quite have the same kind of flair and imagination. And he, even the Queen Elizabeth ship scenes, where everything's tilted and sort of Dutch angled, uh, it's sort of decorated it's like it's some seaside B&B. It's all a bit sort of Eastbourne. Um, you know, I don't know if the real Queen, uh, Queen Elizabeth ship was like that, but, you know, you should have a bit of artistic license um but i think that that you know ken adams sort of not not contributing to it does it does give it a kind of not quite a legitimate bond feel uh you know despite john barry's uh score work um you know it's a it's a it's a big shame and it, it's sort of i think it, it 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 adds to the film's sort of slightly Slightly sort of ugly, sort of an ugly, slightly, slightly ugly, cheap-looking film, and I think that's got a lot to do with uh, Merton's um, Merton's production design. So beyond that, in terms of cast coming back, uh, you've got Roger Moore returning for his second Bond film as part of his three-film deal. In uh, Roger's book, My Word Is My Bond, he talks about Guy Hamilton wanting to toughen up his version of Bond a bit. Um, and he talks about the scene where he has to twist Maud Adams' arm for information. And this is something Maud Adams talks about as well on the DVD extras. Uh, he, he Roger says that sort of characterization didn't didn't sit easily with me, but he went along with it anyway. He just trusted Hamilton's instinct for it. And I think it does sort of stick out as a bit of a, a bit of a rough moment for Roger's bond. Um, uh, there's also the other bit as well, which Roger says that he cringes when he watches it, is when he pushes the boy into the river as well. Um, which is unnecessarily cruel, I think, for Bond, um, particularly for Rogers Bond as well. You know, he seems such a genial presence. But I remember we're reading about I remember who it was or when it was, but they said uh, they were la- they were write- writing as if they were laughing at, at Roger as Bond at that point, and then it was by Spy Who Loved Me they were writing because they were writing for Roger as Bond. They were to make giving him up the good lines and making him the star. Um, which I think you feel. Um, and then Roger, he, just a, another quick anecdote. Uh, he uh, recounted the story of shooting his final scene in the film in his book, My Word is My Bond. It was the scene where he retrieved the bullet from the belly button of the dancer. That was the very last thing they shot. He was wearing this silk suit that he'd hoped that he would be able to save from the film, keep it for himself. And once they wrapped, Cubby appeared next to him on top of a ladder and dumped a bucket full of paste all over him to ruin the suit, <laughs> which I think is uh, I think is funny. Um, other returning characters: Lois Maxwell. She's back playing Money Penny for the ninth time. Uh, not much to say about that, but other than that, she complained on a chat show that she never gets to travel to the locations. She filmed her only scene on, at Pinewood after nearly missing out on Live and Let Die. Bernard Lee did return for another Bond film, his ninth film. Uh, and then Desmond Llewellyn returned as Q for his seventh time. Uh, but it's his first with Roger Moore. He didn't appear in Live and Let Die. Those two knew each other from Ivanhoe. And this was when Roger began his ongoing, 
ongoing joke of rewriting Desmond's script with technical jargon um, to spook him, to give him extra lines to learn. Um, <laughs> Roger said in his book, Meanwhile, I'll be giggling like mad and Desmond would look at me as though thinking, what is this bloody man laughing at? I'm giving my best performance and he thinks it's funny. Then the penny would drop. Another couple of good returns to note. Mark Lawrence, uh, he had been in Diamonds Are Forever as a gangster. He's back in this movie as another gangster. There is a suggestion it might be the same gangster. That's never been confirmed. Uh, he plays the mobster right at the beginning of the film that's brought to the island by Nick Knack. And then Clifton James is back as J.W. Pepper, reprising his role after Live and Let Die. Brendan, you're shaking your head. <laughs> of course I am. It just doesn't make any sense, does it? <laughs> Hamilton Guy Hamilton said it was pretty corny but he was such a lovable character we thought we'll have him again um, and Clifton James said that Cubby had called him directly to invite him back rather to speak to, rather than speak to his agent and he was told to go and buy some Hawaiian shirts for the movie so he went down to his local I think it was JC Penny or something like that bought these Hawaiian shirts took them there and they were all um, made in Thailand. <laughs> so. I, yeah, I love the fact that this is a multi-million dollar production and they're just asking one of the actors to bring your own shirts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, you said this film looks cheap. That's probably why. <laughs> um, so, new cast. The Bond girls, uh, we've got Britt Eklund as Mary Goodnight and um, she... She said that she'd wanted to be a Bond girl since Doctor No. She'd seen Ursula Andress and um, thought that she was the most incredible looking person she'd ever seen. Um, so she said, that's what I want to do and, and really focused on that. Um, she found out that the next film would be The Man with the Golden Gun. So she read the novel. She dressed as Bond's secretary and put her hair in a bun and went to Cubby's office and... Um, I just love how confident that is just walk up at Cubby's. Um, and he said to her, well, you know, we only really use the title of the stories on Bonds and we build our stories around the title of the books. Uh, as I was leaving, he introduced me to Roger Moore, who had just come into his office. And then she went uh, away to the USA and, um, and was making a movie. And then she read the news that they had brought on board Mort Adams as the new Bond girl, and she was absolutely devastated, as you can imagine. She's Swedish herself. A couple of weeks later, her agent said that Cubby wants to meet, and she thought that he just wanted to meet in person, say, you haven't got the part, but I just wanted to let you know. But no, she got to the office, and he said, you are Mary Goodnight. So she got the part. Um, so it pays to just sort of be really brazen. Another Bond link, Britt Eklund was married to Peter Sellers. Who was in the 1967 Casino Royale? Um, then we've got Maud Adams as Andrea Anders, who is Scaramanga's mistress, and um, she described it as a woman without a lot of choices, which I think is pretty fair. She's you know, like a caged bird, isn't she? Really, um, just living in fear. Guy Hamilton had seen Maud Adams when uh, he met her in New York. And he thought she was really elegant, quite different. And he liked the Swedish element for a Bond girl. He thought it would make a pleasant change. Um, at that point, she didn't have much acting experience, but it didn't require uh, much, which that's what Guy Hamilton said. Um, I think that's quite unfair. I think it's got, like, especially the scene where Bond interrogates her. That requires a bit of acting for that. Yeah. So obviously... 
This was the first of two Bond films that she appears in. Next one being Octopussy, where she plays the title character. Um, and the 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 rumor, which we have I think has been dispelled many times on this podcast, that she was an extra in A View to a Kill. Yeah. It's not true. <laughs> Um, throughout the shoot, Roger Moore referred to Maud and Brit as Mud and Bert, and he played many tricks and jokes on them, um, lots of X-rated jokes, apparently. Um, um, the two of them would sometimes joke about people on set in Swedish, and they'd made a few comments about Christopher Lee in his presence, um, and they thought they were having a secret conversation, but it turned out he understood what they were saying. Um, but they hadn't been saying anything too harsh. But um, I can imagine that's mortifying. Um, and then we've got Francoise T- uh, Terry, Terry as Chu Me, who is High Fat's mistress, who we see swimming in the swimming pool, but she's actually uncredited. Um, so, yeah, there's the, there's the Bond girls. But, about the villains, yes. Yeah, well, you've, the the, uh, you've got the plum choice here, haven't you? The yeah. Well, uh, yeah. Uh, um, Scaramanga, which obviously is one of the the absolute top uh, top Bond villains. Uh, well, Jack Palance was apparently originally offered the role. Um, he was certainly uh, Mankovich's choice, uh, and that obviously sort of filtered uh, filtered down to the producers who, who asked him. But uh, but Palance turned it down. Uh, so then they went to uh, Christopher Lee, who coincidentally uh was uh, uh ian fleming's step cousin and a regular golfing partner of his um and i think I, and the, the casting of lee is quite different to how scaramanga is portrayed in the book which is just a much more thuggish uh personality and you'd be sort of hard pressed to ever cast sort of lee as a sort of a common or garden thug uh he's, he's definitely brought all that sort of class and breeding uh, to the role. So he's like a sort of more like a dark mirror image of Bond. Um, and he's so, so charismatic and self-composed in the role. It's, uh, it's difficult to imagine anybody else in it now. And, and the fact that he's taller than Roger, which you really notice during the, the, the dual sequence. And just that fact makes him such an imposing bad guy. And, um, and it kind of makes you think that Bond is possibly outmatched for the first time. And then of course there's his, little hench person, played by Hervé Avilachez, uh, Nick Knack. And I think he's among the best henchmen uh, in, in Bond. Um, and this film kind of made him a star. It put him on the radar for Fantasy Island, uh, where his his uh, his uh, catchphrase, Da Plain, Da Plain, literally has its own Wikipedia page. Um, <laughs> and the, uh, he's, the character, he just really enjoys being evil. Um almost apparently as much as, as Hervé Villachez apparently loved the ladies. Um, and I love all the stories from that set, mostly told by Roger Moore, it seems, about how sort of sexually voracious uh, he was and how he tried on with virtually any any female within spitting distance, uh, in, including Maud Adams, it, it, it seems, uh, and, and possibly Brit Eklund. Um, so, yes, I, I gather he was quite a, quite a character. Yes, and that story about Maud Adams, which he says... Uh... Hervé said, uh, I'd love to take you to bed and uh, ravish you under the covers and blah, blah, blah. And she said, um, if I ever found out that you have done, I'll murder you. <laughs> <Something> <laughs> <like that. laughs> uh, and apparently, yeah, he loved the time in Thailand because it was a place to, to go out party in. But I think you're right. I think he is one of the all time great hench people. And this mm-hmm. is something we talk about a lot on the podcast 
in that making a memorable hench person is they have to physically stand out from the crowd. Um, and, and obviously by being a, a little person, that sort of sets him apart from all the others that have come before him. But there is that villainous streak to him. Um, he obviously relishes his job. That's something else we talk about as well. You know, the hench people, when they seem to be enjoying their job, that's what makes them a good one, uh, a memorable one. Um, yeah, and I love him. I just think he just gets a bit of a, 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 a poor deal in his final scene, I guess. Yeah, because I, I don't think... They don't really uh, take the mick out of out of his size really until that final scene and then that mm. suddenly becomes quite sort of demeaning uh you know it's a, it's a it's a big sort of misstep at the film i think yeah in terms of allies there's not a huge amount in in the man with the golden gun to talk about you've got lieutenant hip who is uh, is a co- really good addition to this movie i think he's played by the south korean actor soon tak oh um and you may also recognize him as the voice of the father in mulan um, and he was also the sensei in the film Beverly Hills Ninja as well. Quite a prolific um, actor, actually. Um, his nieces, though, I think are sort of two of the most memorable uh, parts of the movie where he has the niece in the back of the car, Char and Nara. Nara was played by Ki uh, Yun. And she later, she basically after acting for, for quite an intense amount in the 70s she gave it all up but returned in the film kung fu hustle and has enjoyed quite a fruitful acting career since then and then the other one with char was played by someone called joy vegajiva who hasn't got a huge amount of credits to her name beyond uh, beyond that but um ki yun is uh is, she's done a lot of work since since then the other one worth noting as well just for the trivia uh reasons is colthorpe the mi6 armament uh, expert who helps to identify the maker of Scaramanga's golden bullets. This was played by an actor called James Cousins. And originally in the, the screenplay, the act, the character was called Boothroyd, but Desmond Llewellyn pointed out that his character was also Boothroyd uh, and Q and that uh, they have to then subsequently change the name in the script to Colthorpe. Um, but yeah, that's the, um... he's, he's also in Faulty Towers. Is he? Yeah, he's one of the he? hotel inspectors, isn't he? Gets gets quite the. It's when he um, the wine's corked, right? He's the guy that says <laughs> the wine's corked. Yeah, yeah. I think he's Bad just one of those seventies faces that that sort of crops up in a lot of sitcoms mm. and sort of fairly low budget comedies. It's um, it's a fairly omnipresent face. Right, well, let's move on to one of the thing aspects of the movie that is uh, makes it super uh, unique is the production and uh, specifically the location shooting. I think this is one of the Bond movies that you can really feel was shot on location. Absolutely, yeah. Starting in uh, Hong Kong, where the they went out to shoot the scene where where they explore the remains of the Queen Elizabeth ship and M's waiting for him, but Roger Moore wasn't there. And um, it was doubled for most of that because he was uh, it wasn't due to start filming until later on. The interiors obviously are filmed at Pinewood later on. Also in Hong Kong, um, we have the Hong Kong Dragon Garden, which is the estate of High Fat. And that, although in the film it's located in Bangkok, it was shot in Hong Kong. The the hotel as well is another key key part at the Peninsula Hotel. Um, where they track down Andrea 
Anders. So yeah, a lot of Hong Kong was used in, in this one. That's where they spent a lot of time there, location recce. So they found a lot of good spots. Um, but obviously filming in Thailand... That's, that's where it gets. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Interesting. Yes, well, they, they started filming in April 74 in Bangkok, um, as well as uh, uh, Thonbori and Phuket, uh, and the islands of, uh, now, no, no, I wonder if I can pronounce this right, Koke Finkan and Koh Tapu, uh, which is now referred to as James Bond Island, uh, both by locals and indeed in the tourist uh, guidebooks. Uh, Phuket, I gather, at the time, uh, was pretty unknown by tourists, uh, very unlike now. Um, so there wasn't even a proper hotel for the cast and crew to stay in. So they ended up lodging uh, for 10 whole days uh, in a converted brothel, uh, <laughs> one that was uh, refurbished and repainted by by, by Eon, um, and the, with the girls apparently sent on holiday somewhere. Um, Christopher Lee uh, also says it was pretty hairy filming there because there were pirates in the vicinity, but it seems like the movie gave a massive boost to the island's tourism, and you know, apparently today they're, they're teeming with holidaymakers, whether uh, whether the islanders uh, like that or not, I, I'm, I don't know. But but certainly it's it's uh, it's uh, it's changed life for them. Definitely, yeah. I mean, um, yeah. I mean that that location there is uh, is uh, it's incredible. It's so evocative, isn't it? You can sort of feel the sweat dripping from them. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I've I've been to Bangkok, but never to James Bond Island, and like part of me would love to, but also I I want to see it like it like it is in the film, and unfortunately I I have a feeling that it, it wouldn't be like that. That there would be a it would be very spoilt now. I read this story as well about the uh, the explosions on the island. Did you read Did you read that when the, with Pretetland and they were setting off these explosions, and Roger Moore was having to sort of get her out of the out of the way of the explosions and he had to save her from the from the explosions um which i thought was quite interesting coffee medium sweet two medium sweet Thanks for listening. We hope you're enjoying the James Bond A to Z podcast. Remember, if you want to support the show, we have a coffee page at ko-fi.com forward slash James Bond A to Z, where you can buy us a coffee for just £3 or for £3 a month. Thanks for listening. Back to the show. Is that all it does? No. Okay, right. Well, let's move on to... um, uh, the film's sort of standout stunt, uh, the corkscrew stunt, and um, I, I 
warning you now, I went down a massive rabbit hole on this one <laughs> because there's a lot written about it uh, uh, out there. So um, the idea for the set piece started uh, with a stunt driver, Joey Chitwood. He had been the stunt coordinator on Live and Let Die and he played a character in that film, Charlie. I don't know if you remember the taxi driver who gets bumped off when they're driving through New York. That's Joey Chitwood. Um, and he sent director uh, Guy Hamilton a photograph of a car that was performing this corkscrew junk, cork, corkscrew jump at a thing called the American Thrill Show in Houston. Now, this stunt uh, was the first time it had ever been done um, at the, in the American Thrill Show. It had been designed by a guy called Raymond McHenry and he'd used a computer. Um, he had uh, to, to, to calculate how the jump could be done and he'd been using this computer to simulate uh, vehicle accidents um, uh, and so he then used this computer to, to, to create this stunt. Um, so when Guy Hamilton talked to Cubby about the stunt, um, unfortunately, this guy, Joey Chitwood, who had pitched the idea, was cut out of the loop. They basically watched the footage of the what they called the Astro Spiral Jump being performed at the Houston Aerodrome in the American Thrill Show. And Cubby took it upon himself to contact the driver of the stunt, a guy called Jay Milligan. And so just to add insult to injury to Chitwood, he was actually in the room when Milligan received the call about doing the stunt. So although he'd set up this stunt with Cubby, he cut the middleman out and went straight to the source. So, yeah, he'd literally been talking to this guy, Milligan, Jay Milligan, about going to Singapore to do the stunts on Man with the Golden Gun. And when he found out he was out of a job because this other guy was going to do it instead. So, yeah, there you go. So Jay Milligan becomes the stunt coordinator on Man with the Golden Gun. So back to Ray McHenry. So he'd been working with crash test dummies and, uh, and computers to um, develop... Um, uh, like seatbelt safety and all that sort of stuff. Um, and then he used the uh, the computer to test variables, theoretical situations um, that he would have to, rather than testing them in real world scenarios. Um, and so he, he saw this opportunity there. Um, and so uh, Ray uh, McHenry, he hired uh, Chitwood's drivers to expand what they called their range of validation so he had them driving on two wheels spinning reversing jumping doing more and more different maneuvers um that he was testing out and so the spiral jump was basically just an extension of that so he sat down conceived it worked out the variables on his computer and did the stunt and then yeah they thought they could do it in this in this thrill show so they they, they couldn't actually run a proper simulation without knowing what the car was going to be used um for it so Milligan went to General Motors to measure the, the, the javelin and then McHenry used the computer to, to figure out um, the, um, the parameters of this stunt. And it was determined that they would need a 40 miles an hour takeoff uh, and a 1.5 second flight time between ramps um, and they, that they would need 200 degrees of rotation per second. Um, so the, the computer basically uh, did the simulations and then they designed a landing ramp to catch the car. And so the car was going to do 270 degrees in the rotation to land safely. So they did some unmanned tests uh, and each test was a success. And then uh, in December, a guy called Chuck Galliano did the test um, and did the first near perfect man test. So then they did a few more tests and then it basically they did it for real in the American Thrill Show. And it was just a massive hit. It was just a global phenomenon. 
So that was it. That was it. Uh, it was a big hit in the American thrill. So fast forward to 1974. Milligan's got the call from Cubby. Uh, he goes to Thailand. They run a new simulation on the car uh, to figure it out because the car they were going to use was the AMC Hornet. The car was fitted with a roll cage, uh, central steering position, um, and also, uh, and it was fitted with obviously speed um, uh, measurers, tachometers, to make sure that the driver hit the ramp um at what they needed in thailand which was 48 miles an hour to make the jump so on the june june the 1st 1974 35 days into production uh, milligan uh, assembled the team at klong ranzit uh, canal in uh, thailand the br- the ramp had been built to look like a bridge a sort of knackered old bridge um and then the spiral jump was performed by a guy called lauren bumps willert in the amc hornet um there were dummies of bond and pepper positioned on either side of willett who was sat in the middle and willett dressed completely in black um they also put a cable with a hook into the river so that if the car went into the river they'll just hook the cable up pull the car out with the with the people in it and, and rescue the driver but they did it and they did it in one take as he did the, the the jump cubby said right that was great it looked too easy can we do it again <laughs> And everyone was like, no way. And the, driver, and the driver of the car was like, that's the first time I've done it anyway. I'm not doing it again. Um, and actually, when you watch it in the film, it is so smooth. It is. Yeah. It's incredible. It's a beautiful piece. Of um, yeah. But the MGM marketing executive, he flew out 100 press from Europe in a, in a 747 just to watch the stunt being done because they knew they had something really special on one side and people wouldn't believe they'd done it for real. Um, and having seen the stunt himself, Roger Moore told the stunt team, you fellas make me look good. And it, it's in the Guinness Book of Records as the first Astro Spiral Jump that went on film. But the moment a lot of people remember it, remember it for is for the slide whistle, um, which sort of undercuts that sort of um, incredible physical stunt with uh, a moment of audio silliness. Um, and John Barry claimed responsibility for that. He said earlier on, I'd, I'd have played it for all it was worth as a really dangerous moment. But now I just took the liberty of poking fun at it. The slide whistle made a mockery of Bond. Even Cubby didn't like that. But that was me starting to get to the end of it. If there were any cracks in the painting, as it were, they were starting to appear then. But obviously, you know, John Barry would continue on until living daylight. So um, the cracks were there for a long time by the sounds of it. <laughs> We get to Pinewood at the end of June 74 um, and we've got the interior sets that obviously designed by Peter Merton and he said I tried to portray our villain Scaramanga as a very educated man with great taste. Interestingly Scaramanga's maze was the set that gave me the most trouble. It took me weeks to figure it out. We were using mirrors and playing with different colours. We had dark areas. I first built it as a model we never had a complete set. So, yeah, they never managed to build that set in its entirety. It was all chunks of set, which was then put together in the edit, um, just because of the, the difficulty he had trying to figure that out. Scaramanga's solar energy plant, that was built to full scale. But Merton, he he's said that he's not a scientist and he had to do a lot of research. Figured out how they, you know, deal with radioactive pools and that dry out ice was used and just got that knowledge and you put it to creating these sets um 
and in terms of the expl- explosions they did have explosions on the real sets um but a lot of it was done by using miniatures uh which was done by john steers so special effects supervisor john steers yeah he was back for the first time since honor majesties the big challenge for him was the flying car scaramanga's flying car um which was actually based on a an invention an invention that did exist by um two guys called Henry Smolinski and Hal Blake. Now they were meant to have flown the vehicle actually in the film, but unfortunately they died in their flying car prior to the production. So Steers said that he said he was working with a full sized sized aircraft and he was basing everything on the power specs of a jet American jet engine. But there were a lot of problems with that. So he, everything was changed at the last minute, and he, he said, "I we think we just got about just about got away with it." So the car itself it was an AMC Matador. The wings, the stunt car was nine meters long, twelve meters wide, and three meters high. So a stuntman drove the car plane to the runway. It wasn't airworthy, um, so they had to use a one meter long remote controlled model which John Steers had built, um, and that was what was used for the, those sequences. Um, and it was on display, I believe, a few years ago at an exhibition. But that was shot, the scenes where the car goes in the air were shot at Bovington Camp, which is a British army base in Dorset in England. Um, and also Scaramanga's Island, Derek Meddings built that um, in miniature, and that was in Pinewood's paddock tank. For the explosions at the end, everything was layered um, and constructed within the model to make the explosions really look like if they were com- as if they were coming from below the lair where Bond is supposed to have started that explosion. Um, yeah, it's it's not it's not one that I really noticed actually. The miniature. Yeah, I yeah. thought it was quite seamless. I thought, oh, have they actually mm. destroyed that island? So that's quite impressive, to be fair. So the golden gun itself, the golden gun of the title. Um, now, there were three uh, golden gun props uh, made. Uh, one solid one, uh, one that could be f- uh, fired with a cap, uh, and one that could be assembled and disassembled. Um, and that was the one that Christopher Lee particularly found irritating uh and, and actually challenging and i think peter lamont um said that he practiced assembling and disassembling it uh, at home while watching tv um and it was made up of various parts uh um the barrel was a fountain pen uh the bullet chamber was a cigarette lighter uh the handle was a cigarette case uh the trigger was a cuff link and the bullet was kept in scaramanga's belt buckle it Apparently in 1997, uh, Eon insured at least one of them uh, for six six and a half thousand pounds. Um, but it also, uh, apparently one of them went missing, suspected stolen, uh, from Elstree Props Department. Um, it doesn't say about the other two. Uh, so whether they're at Elstree or at Eon somewhere, um, uh, we don't know. But uh, either way, uh, I'd love to... I'd love to have one of them. Yeah, they've made replicas as well recently, didn't they? And sold them for mm. extortionate amounts of money. Mm. Um, I think it's it's one of those cool sort of iconic Bond props that doesn't really make a huge amount of sense. 
Um, I don't know why Scaramanga has to go through this rigmarole of assembling the gun to kill anyone when he could just use a normal gun. Um, yeah, it's not like we're seeing him sort of go through airport security. No. Uh, you know, so... <laughs> Surely it's not going to be as accurate as like a regular made gun either. No, just the whole thing seems inconvenient, doesn't it? It He's is. Going, hang on, I'm mm. going to shoot you in a minute. Hang on, hang on, just screwing this together. <laughs> bizarre. So, as mentioned previously, uh, we've got uh, the music on the film. Um, so we're into post-production now. Having... Not worked on Live and Let Die. John Barry returned to work on The Man with the Golden Gun. Um, he'd sat out Live and Let Die reportedly because um, that was a Harry Saltzman production and he'd fallen out with Harry over Diamonds Are Forever, the song. Um, so I didn't realise that falling out over the song and the lyrics was so um, was so heated. But um, there we have it. Um so, I mean, a lot of this information here about from the music uh, comes from John Burlingame's excellent book, The Music of James Bond. Um, so full credit there. But uh, apparently Cubby wanted John Barry back for, for Golden Gun. Um, but they didn't have long to sort the score. The film was running late uh, and they knew that uh, John Barry could work fast. And so that's why they sort of returned to John Barry after having used um, George Martin on Live and Let Die. Barry's commitments were even tighter than usual because he was working on a film called The Day of the Locust. So he was uh, very much pressed for time. Uh, and he said in an interview later, uh, he said, I used to like to have time on the songs, but for many of the movies, I'd write two or three until I got the one that felt right. But on Golden Gun, there was no time. It was a crazy rush. I was never happy with it. I just don't think anyone was happy with it. I thought the score was very good, actually, but the song just didn't happen. So he finished working on The Day of the Locust um, in LA, uh, flew back to the UK on a Sunday and started work on Man with the Golden Gun on a Monday. And he had just three weeks to write the score. Um, and not only was it uh, a rush to write the score, he only had five days to record the score as well. It was the shortest time he'd ever been given to record a score for a major motion picture. And he'd actually written 57 minutes of music for the film. Um, and as 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 um, as Steve said before, it's it's a slightly different score from Barry here. It's a bit, bit lighter, um, reflects a, a sort of a lighter Bond um, style of film as well. Um, but interestingly, uh, I found or, or or I learned from from John Burlingame's book is that this film Day of the Locust, which he just made, was a 1930s jazz era um, movie. Um, and so when when uh, some of that then bleeds into the man with the golden gun score, so you've got the return to Scaramanga's Funhouse, which has um, like a, a, a sort of a jazz um, sort of Dixieland uh, piano part to the score, which seems to be directly coming from off the back of his work on, on this Day of the Locust. Um, and then there's also a full jazz instrumental of the Bond theme, which you can only hear on the LP that didn't make it into the film. Um, so, again, that's very much heavily influenced by his work on his previous uh, previous film. But 
according to this as well, the man with the golden gun was the first one to drop the guitar uh, from the theme that was held over uh, that you hear over the gun barrel. It's quite a different um, gun barrel sound you get on this one. Yeah, so the song, uh, the lyrics to the song were written by Don Black um, and it was sang by Lulu. So Don Black actually said that he felt the title was what held him back on this. He said that if we had to do it again, we'd tuck it away in the middle. The man with the golden gun, you're talking about an assassin. You can't imagine Tony Bennett singing it. It's very hard to create a standard with that title. But uh, he, d- he, d- he did his best and um, he tried to write provocative sensual lyrics he said they're a bit on the nose he has a powerful weapon that got your attention straight away lulu had been um they tried to get her to appear in casino royale back in 67 and she had had a number one with a don black track called to sir with love don black said that she was a great choice we wanted her and lulu said of course, it was such an honour. Before I'd even heard the thing, I was dying to sing it. I really thought it was more of a Shirley Bassey song, but I felt I did a really bad impression of Shirley. Speaking in 2017, she said, I think mine was probably the worst one ever. Mine was not a great song. Um, the interviewer then reminded her of Dying of the Day, and she said, <laughs> oh yeah, hers was pretty bad. Probably Madonna and I had the worst and that's the only time Madonna and I could be grouped together on anything. So um, there you go. Retrospectively, Lulu has uh, come to terms with the fact it, it wasn't wasn't so great. Um, and Alice Cooper also wrote a song, Man with the Golden Gun, um, which they insist was supposed to be used um, until they went for Lulu instead. Um, and you can hear this. They released it on one of their albums. Um, so yeah, have, have a listen to that. Maybe we'll put a clip of that in as well. That's a more natural progression from uh, Paul McCartney and Wings, isn't it? From that to, to Alice Cooper rather yeah. than Lulu. Um, but something I will say about Man with the Golden Gun, although it is considered to be one of the worst theme songs, I think it's one of the catchiest in terms of like being an earworm. Absolutely. You know, you know well, as soon as I hear that, um, the the hook, you know, and the uh, um, just the lyrics, it just gets stuck in my head all day mm-hmm. long. Um, yeah. Uh, and there's no denying that Lulu is an icon. What you're saying, she was there in 1967, they considered her for Bond. Mm-hmm. Then she made this in 70s. In the 90s, she was doing music with Take That. And then yeah. just the other month, I saw her doing this song at the Albert Hall. She's still going. She's still yeah. an icon. And she's done work with David Bowie as well. So, um, you know, I don't think we can dis- dismiss it uh, that uh, that easily. No, well, you talked about the uh, the, the on the nose lyrics, uh, and obviously that's uh, that's reflected in the titles too. Um, the Morris Binder was never going to be subtle about this. Um, it could have been worse. It could have been a lot more carry on than it was. Uh, you certainly get uh, girls stroking um, the golden gun, sort of quite phallically. But you know, Binder can be either brilliant or terrible, and I, and I gather that kind of. Uh, 
he used to do these very close to, to final edit. And so you always get the impression they were sort of done on the hoof and sometimes it worked and sometimes it, it really didn't. Um, I think this one's kind of in the middle. Uh, a lot of it is sort of girls kind of reflected through water, um, which weirdly doesn't really reflect, you know, uh, sort of much about the film. It's not it's not as if it's sort of Thunderball. Um, but there's a few kind of like quite memorable images. Um, certainly sort of the, the girl dancing with sort of a, a sort of sort of fireworks behind it is uh is quite striking um but it's not i wouldn't say it's kind of one of binder's uh uh, best that's fair i think that's fair right that wraps up our production now we've got to get the film out there so uh the premiere for the man with the golden gun was held at odeon leicester square in london on the 19th of december 1974 and was released in the united kingdom on the same day Prince Philip attended the royal premiere. I'm, I'm sure he enjoyed some of the casual racism in the movie, uh, allegedly. Um, <laughs> Roger Moore was there and he was also uh, joined by Hervé Villachez, Maud Adams and Britt Eklund as well. Uh, Christopher Lee, though, he travelled to LA to promote the movie on the Johnny Carson's, Carson show. Uh, legend has it that he was uh, stopped at customs who confiscated his golden gun on arrival um so that may be where the missing one went steve i'm not sure um <laughs> but yeah that was the that was the premiere it wasn't that warmly received by the critics at the time the guardian said guy hamilton goes through his paces once again with admirable stoicism and occasional flair but he can't disguise the fact that the script is just about the limpest of the lot variety said Guy Hamilton's direction and screenplay are comparatively placid and even monotone. At this rate, the 10th film might be phoned in. Uh, Time magazine uh, uh, pinpointed the flying car. They said, in fact, the flying car is much like what is wrong with the man with the golden gun and what has been wrong with the whole Bond series for a while. Over tricky, uninspired. These exercises show the strain of stretching fantasy well past wit. So there we go. It got off to a decent start at the box office. Um, Fairly solid start, but it dropped off very steeply. Uh, In the US, it was playing opposite uh, Godfather Part 2 and Young Frankenstein, which, as we know, know, were beer moths at the the box office. Um, And they both earned three... uh, In fact, Godfather earned three times as much as Golden Gun uh, earned and Young Frankenstein four times as much at the box office. So from a production budget of just $7 million, the film took $97 million at the worldwide box office. But this was a huge drop after Live and Let Die, which had made $161 million um, at the box office. So it was clear that the, the series was at an impasse and they needed to have a major rethink. Um, it's the fourth lowing, lowest grossing Bond film to date. And when you adjust for inflation, it's the second lowest grossing bond film ever so there you have it um the only awards that it picked up was the golden screen award um and i know we keep mentioning these brendan um but i had to dug into what the golden screen award is in germany they get them for ticket sales so it's like getting a gold disc basically right so if you sell a certain amount of tickets you get a golden screen award so i don't think we should talk about them in in terms of it being an award-winning movie um no by any stretch of the imagination but yeah i mean the the general story was that uh it was the 10th movie in the series 
uh, that at that time had felt a bit tired and a bit stale. But also behind the scenes, they were struggling as well. So uh, I can't wait. Actually, it's interesting. Next week, we'll be doing The Spy Who Loved Me, right? So we'll go straight into the the next part of this story then. So I'm looking forward to that. Um, Have we got any three-word review, Brendan? We've got two. Two worth reading out. So, yeah. Listen, it's my fault for putting it out late. I was too busy on Twitter today uh, doing mashups of Daniel Craig dancing uh, to play out. Priorities. Yeah. (laughs) If you had to summarise it there, Brendan, what would be your three-word review? Bond in transition. Yeah. I think this is a... It's a... a, a, The franchise, like you say, it's, what year? 12 years in now? You know, it's got a new Bond that it's it's struggling to know what to do with how to go down how to use Roger Moore I think and as we'll find out next week I think that's why they needed to go back to the drawing board and 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 really figure out what they wanted to do moving forward and that's why we get money thrown at the problem I think with the smile of me yeah I mean it's odd that it's this film where you get the big misstep of uh of Roger's Bond threatening to break Andrea's arm you know, which you could understand if it was his first one, they were kind of, and you felt as though this was being sort of written for Rod, written for Sean. Uh, but this is his f- second film, and he just just thought that they were they would be learning to kind of tailor tailor it to to, to more strength. But um, but yeah, it, it's it is it does feel like a, a Bond film in transition because they're still trying to find their feet and trying to find where where are we going in the nineteen seventies, and and suddenly it all just coalesces with Spy Love Me. If you had to summarise it in three words, Steve, if we put you on the spot. Uh, do you know, I'm, I'm going to try to be positive. So I'll just say Christopher Lee, brilliant. And um, and leave it at that. Yeah, I was going to say Christopher Lee's good as my three-word review, actually. So I think, um, I think that's a really fair summary. I would say, you know... Um, I think this is a film that is, uh, is, is less than the sum of its parts. Mm. Um, I think that because there is so much great stuff to enjoy within it. Um, I like Nick Knack. I like uh, um, Scaramanga. Um, I like the flying car. I like the, the corkscrew stunt. Um, I like the locations. Um, but it just doesn't... Uh, there's, there's some good iconography in it, but it just doesn't add up. Um, and I think you're right. I think it's because there is... It's the combination of the the troubles behind the scene between Cubby and Harry. There's just a lot, obviously a lot of disharmony there. Tom Mankovitz pulling out quite early in the in the development and, and Richard Maybaum being brought back in. Roger not really having the confidence or the, uh, the, the support he needed um, to make uh, a good fist of it. It also um, had two DOPs. Really? Yeah, Ted Moore uh, pulled out. He became ill. And right. So he pulled out mm. um, in the middle of the project. So that's not going to help either, is it? I think it's just, I mean, because it was slightly rushed into production, wasn't it? And you've got, uh, you know, this is, as I said, this is um, a Guy Hamilton's third film in a row. He's tired and doesn't have, have much to bring, to bring to the table anymore. And certainly Mankovic actually you know, stated that was the reason why he, why he left after that first draft was the fact that he was kind of bonded out. Mm. Um, so I think it's just an awful lot of people who should have moved on earlier. And, you know, may, maybe it would have been a different film with, I don't know, if Lewis Gilbert had done it and, um, you know, just a, just a screenwriter with a, with a fresh pair of eyes. Um, 
you know, who, who actually wanted to work on, on these films. Well, I just felt as though everybody was maybe tired, you know. I think that time constraint is really important as well. I think they started work on this less than 12 months after the first that Live and Let Die had been released, which is kind of kind of crazy. And when they rushed them through, uh, you just have to look at um, Quantum of Solace as another example of where mm. they try to, you know, capitalise on uh, striking while the iron's hot and it just not being ready and not having everything in position to be able to make a good fist of it. I think this this film really has uh, has that um has that feeling about it as well um I, I don't you don't it's one of those as well you don't see being like you said at the start steve you don't see people calling it like a guilty pleasure type bond film like you do with a lot of them uh, a lot of the less i mean you've got two guilty pleasures behind you you've got moonraker and diamonds are forever in posters behind you so absolutely uh, yeah and i know i know i know loads of people who, who love those movies and i know loads of people who hate them uh so yeah they're, they're they're definitely kind of bond marmite films but but the, this one uh really isn't and and i know i noticed it's on it's on rotten tomatoes rotten tomatoes list of bond films it's number 25 uh on a list that also includes um never say never again and the 67 casino royale and the only two movies that are below it are a view to a kill uh on 38 percent uh Sorry, it's got 39% on there, by the way. Uh, View to a Kill has 38%, and Casino Royale 67 version has 27%. Um, I I think that's about fair. I, I think I'd, I'd probably uh, rate them similarly. Yeah, Brenda, I'm interested to hear about you, your thoughts on, on this one in, in the Roger Moore canon. We've done uh, a few of his now. Uh, View to a Kill was one of the first ones we covered, but um, do you think this is better or worse than a View to a Kill? It's very, it's very tight. I think. Um, I think this just edges it purely. Christopher Lee, every yeah. time he's on screen, it's it's captivating. And I, I could, like I said at the beginning, I could watch two hours of them if it's just at the the meal scene when they're having that meal. It's fantastic. Yeah, you know that, that I could just have a conversation between the two, and I think they. It's such a shame that Christopher Lee gets the script that he does, and he's in the film that he is. Yeah, I think it's a miracle we've got to this point in the podcast and we haven't mentioned the third nipple. Well, <laughs> I, I watched it because uh, I watched the film the other day and um, what annoys me is he just throws it away. <laughs> he throws it in a bush. Yeah. <laughs> like Q, Q has worked ages on that. And and also he needs it in the next scene because he goes to pretend to be Scaramanga again. Yeah. So, But he's thrown it away by this point. And there are, there are a couple of, of very bad tit puns. Yes. Uh, which, which are, yeah, you know, Mank, I, lo- I love you, but, you know, I grimaced at those. Mm-hmm. So any other notes to say on uh, on The Man with the Golden Gun before we wrap things up? Uh, well, I think it's uh, it's my second favourite film that stars uh, Christopher Lee and, uh, and Britt Eklund together. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, no, it doesn't quite match up to The Wicker Man. I Great. think, I, yeah, I think she actually gets a... a pretty raw deal actually from it because she's another ditzy agent uh, after similar to Rosie Carver um, and then of course she spends the entire last reel in a bikini sort of on the flimsiest of excuses because Scaramanga uh, can spot any concealed weapons um, except he doesn't ask Bond to wear swimming trunks so that's no, it, yeah. exactly. Um, yeah and she like, she's uh, maybe as an actor she's not quite up there with with Maud Adams but, um, yeah, fair point. 
Okay, so Steve, uh, thank you so much for joining us on this episode. Uh, really appreciated you coming along and uh, sharing your insights. If people want to find you online, how do they get hold of you? Uh, I I believe I'm on Twitter as Mrs. Steve M. O'Brien. Um, although I'm taking a Twitter break at the moment, it's just too depressing out there. Yeah. And if people want to get hold of us, Brendan on social media? At James Bond A to Z on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. Uh, so uh, yes and if you want to email the show as we always encourage you to uh, then you can get us on podcast at jamesbond8z.co.uk and if you do want to share your three word reviews on this one retrospectively then please tweet them to us um, so that uh, we can uh, enjoy them Um, but on that note it just remains for me to say that the James Bond A to Z podcast will return next week ciao James Bond A to Z podcast is hosted and produced by Tom Butler and Brendan Duffy with music by Tom Ingemels and artwork by Helen Dolly. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please like and subscribe and leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you listen. Mm. Excellent. Slightly reminiscent of a 34 Mouton. Then I must add it to my cellar. You uh, live well, Scaramanga. At a million dollars a contract, I can afford to, Mr. Bond. You work for Peanuts. A hearty well done from Her Majesty the Queen and a pittance of a pension. Apart from that, we are the same. To us, Mr. Bond, we are the best. There's a useful four-letter word, and you're full of it. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.